You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. You know, 16 weeks ago when we started this, you all were dancing when that played. And you just sit there now. 16 weeks ago, we are wrapping up a series we began on February 6th. We've titled Under the Influence, a study through the book of Nehemiah. And uh, as you've hopefully figured out by now in week 16, Nehemiah was really not that special of a person, was he? He's just a regular guy. He wasn't a king, he wasn't a prophet, he wasn't a priest. He's just an average guy that God used to accomplish his purpose of ultimately rebuilding the wall and even beyond that, rebuilding the people of God in Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah is very helpful for us in many ways, but perhaps more than anything because of just how relatable he is. We just, we can kind of connect with him a bit more than we can some of the other biblical characters because we're not all that different than Nehemiah uh, than we think. And we've learned a lot of uh, practical things along the way as well. The importance of the Word of God in our lives as it directs us and how to handle betrayal from the people who are closest to us and how to handle the pressures of success and there's so many others. And so this morning, as we wrap this series up, we are once again going to get a very practical look uh, about a practice that is central to our faith. I do want to just call to attention one thing. I would be remiss if I didn't because they put so much time and effort and thought and prayer into it. Uh, but given that today is uh, not the first time that I've certainly uh, preached up here solo, but the first solo Sunday as the uh, primary preaching and teaching pastor, the praise man made me a custom solo cup that says Derek's solo for my iced coffee. So I just want to give them a shout out. Um, if you're wondering why the pastor is drinking from a party cup, it's, uh, uh, that's why. We're going to be talking this morning in Nehemiah 9, that's what we'll be, so you can flip your Bibles there, uh, about a practice that's really central to our faith, a crucial component of Christianity, and yet, ironically, a practice that is prevalent in other faith traditions as well, and even non-faith traditions. A practice that everyone loves but doesn't want to lead. The theme of the 1989 smash hit by Madonna and the thing that Bon Jovi is living on. We are going to be talking about prayer. Prayer this morning. Come on, that was great. Living on a prayer. I worked so hard on that one. In a recent uh, survey by Pew Research, they gave us some updated numbers on the practices of prayer in America, and really there were some very interesting and in some cases very sad statistics that came out of this study. For example, one of the more alarming trends is that uh, there are less people who pray on a daily basis in our younger generations in America than in our older generations. That may not surprise you, uh, but it is actually true, and it's very troubling because it reveals a lack of discipleship happening in the younger people in the church. And usually when someone brings this kind of thing up, there's one of two ways we look at it. Either we beat up the millennials for being worthless, or we beat up the older generations for not raising the millennials better, right? And, and the reality is, is, I think there's probably some truth somewhere in the middle, that younger people need to have a, a fire lit under them. They, they need to understand the value of what they bring as a member of the body of Christ. But in the same vein, older generations need to 
to be more maybe pro- proactive in, in seeking those younger people out and actually discipling them. Either way, the result is that the younger you are in America, the less you pray. That's what the statistics tell us. Another troubling statistic is that of the top three uh, people who or people groups who pray the most regularly or consistently, uh, evangelical Protestants, which is what we would fall under, are not there. We're not in the top three. We're like number seven or eight, I think, in the list. Uh, Number three is the historically black Protestantism, which makes a lot of sense given the last few years, uh, rise in racial tension and some of just the awful things that have happened, I I imagine would absolutely push people to pray. Uh, Number two is Mormons. And number one, 90% of which pray daily, are the Jehovah's Witnesses, the guys at your door. Um, Now, let me remind you, lest you beat yourself up for not praying as often as the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses, that both of these traditions are uh, quite legalistic. They uh, They view salvation through the lens of works in many ways, and so uh, they have to pray, otherwise God becomes mad at them and they don't go to heaven, right? Um, One of perhaps the most fascinating statistics comes from the religious nuns, and I don't mean the sister act kind, Um, I mean the N-O-N-E-S kind, the nuns, the nothings, the people that you would uh, lump into the categories of atheism, agnosticism, and just uninterested in the faith. As you might expect, 60% of them do not pray. That's not a shocking stat at all. The the shocking stat is that 22% of them pray daily. Yeah, that's an interesting one. That one is worthy of thinking about a little bit. Uh, It speaks, I think, just my personal reading into this, it speaks to the reality of how difficult life has been perhaps over the last few years. These are updated numbers. That number has increased substantially. And I think it shows that the reality of our pain and suffering and loss bring us to a place of vulnerability, uh, which makes us the most able to reach out to a higher power like God. Now, if you were to compare all these groups and the practice of prayer in each of them, you would probably find very different looks at prayer, right? The method, uh, the language, the the way, the posture, they would probably look very different across the board. And I imagine that's true even here in City on a Hill. If you were to take a survey of everyone in this room, we're not, don't worry, but if we were, uh, you would probably find the practices of prayer vary uh, in a considerable amount across the board. The question that we should be interested in is what does the Bible say about prayer? What does Scripture say about prayer? How should we, as people who seek to influence the world for the kingdom of God, pray? Nehemiah chapter 9, I believe, gives us a very beautiful portrait of what that can look like. It's not a comprehensive look. There's certainly other passages that deal with prayer. Uh, But Nehemiah 9 gives us a really, really beautiful look at what prayer can look like as an influencer for the kingdom. Now, before we dive into this chapter, I want to give you a little bit of context because last week we were in 7. We're sort of bypassing 8, so I want to catch you up at at what we're doing here. Uh, at, At Chapter 7, if you remember last week, Nehemiah begins this hard work of rebuilding the people. The wall is complete, now it's time to rebuild the people. First he appoints godly leaders, then he looks for willing workers that will follow the lead of these godly men. 
And then at the end of that chapter, if you remember, all the way back to like 70 through 72, verses 70 through 72, uh, there are some really well-known prominent families in Israel that give a lot of money, and so they rejoice at this generosity that is displayed in helping jumpstart the economy. If people are going to move back into the city, then there needs to be commerce there. There needs to be something that draws people to the city, and, and so they kind of give it a jumpstart, a boost, by giving a pretty sizable amount into the city to get it going. And then we get to chapter 8, and uh, we, we've, we've covered a lot of this chapter about 12 weeks ago when we took a detour and talked about the, uh, the, the man named Ezra, Ezra the priest. Uh, if you recall, the, the people coming back from uh, Persia into Jerusalem happens in, in three phases, right? The first phase was with Zerubbabel, who brought people back, a cohort of people back to rebuild the temple. And then in phase two, we met Ezra, the priest, who comes to, now that the temple is built, reestablish the law of Moses. And then now in phase three with Nehemiah and the wall, Ezra is still around. He's still alive. He's still doing the work that a priest would do. And in chapter eight, <clears throat> he's here. It says that the people of God gather together and Ezra preaches for six hours. So here's what I thought in the spirit of Ezra this morning. I've prepared a six-hour message for you. We'll get out of here by 4.30 at the latest. Uh, I, I think you're going to really be blessed by this. I'm kidding. I would never do that to you. Um, but it does say, verse 3, from early morning to midday, he preached. Here's the more miraculous part. Not that he went for six hours. But it says in verse 3 as well, the, all the people listened attentively. Like, that is the miracle. <laughs> right? Now, now, all I'm asking from you is 30 minutes, all right? From this point on, 30 minutes. If you can give me that, then they went six hours, give me 30 minutes. But understand, as much of a revival as this was, and it truly was, I believe, a, a massive revival in the people of Israel, there was no rejoicing. It wasn't one of those revivals. It wasn't a happy revival. Nehemiah 8, verse 9, it says, all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Here's what's happening. They were heartbroken. They were confronted with something that they had not been aware of for a very long time, which was the gravity of their sin. They were, they were for the first time perhaps, understanding why God moved them into exile to begin with those 150 years ago. Everything they experienced, every pain that they experienced, every heartbreak that they experienced, they were understanding now it all made sense why God does this. And I, and I love this. It's a, it's a really beautiful picture of, of momentary grace. Nehemiah and Ezra say to them, don't be sad today. Don't be sad today. Because see, right now in chapter 8, what was happening is a very well-known Jewish holiday called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, depending on the translation that you're reading. It was a, a Jewish celebration of God's faithfulness to Israel while they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. This is in the book of Exodus, by the way, if you are interested. Uh, Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, it kind of qualifies in all of those. Incidentally, if you're in the New Testament, John chapter 7, Jesus is with uh, his brothers, and they are actually departing to go to the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booth. So this is still happening in New Testament time. Jesus himself even goes to celebrate because it was a big day. They're celebrating what God had done those 40 years in providing for them and leading them ultimately to the promised land, the land of Canaan. And so it's a big day to celebrate. So this is what Nehemiah and Ezra say. This is in chapter 8, verse 10. 
They say, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. In other words, there's gonna be a time to be sad and to mourn for the sin that you have committed, but now is not that time. Now we celebrate God's goodness. This takes precedent. God's glory, God's faithfulness takes precedence over our mourning and over our sadness. And so they do, they celebrate. God is honored, it's a beautiful thing that happens. And then we get to chapter nine. The Feast of Tabernacles is over. And now is the time for them to come to terms with their sin. And chapter 9 chronicles how this happens. Verse 1, it says, The people gathered together with fasting and with sackcloth. That's a, uh, a Jewish way of symbolizing deep mourning and repentance over sin. Verse 2, it says, The Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. So they're really opening up now. They're airing out the dirty laundry. Nothing is being hidden. They're laying it all out on the table. They're owning their rebellion. They're confessing their sin. Verse 3, it says that they continued to read Scripture for another fourth of the day. This is an all-day event. Really what was happening here is the Word of God was doing its job. The Word of God was doing its job. The Word of God is like a light. It reveals sin. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp unto my feet. Right? The word illuminates into the darkness. It shines into the darkness. Their sin had been hidden. They had covered it up. They weren't willing to confess it. And now, as they're being washed over by the reading of the word, hour upon hour, their sin was coming to light. It was being uncovered by the Spirit of God. It's never made sense to me why preachers will try and do the work that the word of God is meant to do. My job is not to get you to see your sin and confess it. My, God, my job is to un, unbound the word and make it make sense to you and let it do its job, which the spirit moves through it, bring repentance and confession to you. The scripture was piercing them. It was doing what Hebrews 4.12 says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That is what was happening in chapter nine. The word was piercing them. It was discerning them. It brought them to a place of mourning and repentance over the things that they had done. And then it says that the Levites, the priests, stand up and they begin to pray on behalf of the people. This is what we would call an intercessory prayer. If you've ever been in a, in a situation where someone comes up to you and they share something with you that is painful and they say, would you please pray for me? What they're asking is, would you please intercede on my behalf? That's what the priests are doing here. And, and this prayer, beginning in verse 5, is what we're going to focus on for the remainder of our time this morning. This is incidentally the, the longest recorded prayer in Scripture. It's longer than any of the other prayers that we have. And it is rich. There's a lot in this. There's a lot that we can learn from these priests in the way that we, we pray. They, they teach us a simple and straightforward format for how to pray in four different directions. So here's what I want to do. Uh, I'm going to ask a question. Don't raise your hand unless you just really want to. Uh, it's fine. But, but think about this inwardly for a moment. If you are someone who could use a better prayer life, I want you to hold that conviction and give me, like I said, the next half hour and if you will take from this, these four directions of prayer from these priests and apply it to your life, apply it to your personal prayer life, 
you will be benefited by it. I have no doubt about that. Amen? First, they look up and praise and worship. Notice the first thing that they pray. This is in verse 5 of chapter 9. It says, Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Blessed be your name. Verse 6 continues, You are Yahweh. They actually give his name here. Anytime you see the Lord in all caps, that stands for God's covenant name, Yahweh. You are the Lord, Yahweh, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, and with all their hosts, and the earth, and all that is in it, and the seas, and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the, mo- the host of heaven worships you. This is just a magnificent reminder of who God is. This is how he's, this is how he's described in Genesis 1 and 2, the one who creates everything, the heavens and the earth, and everything that lives on the earth, and everything that dwells in the sea, and everything that is in the air, and the host of heaven. This is a term that the Old Testament uses regularly to describe angels. In other words, God's entire created economy bows at him because he and he alone is the author, the creator, the maker of all things. And he's exalted above all things. Whenever you begin to pray, this is where you begin. This is where you begin. By looking up. Stop looking, metaphorically, at whatever dumb thing you're looking at. And look up to the one true God with adoration and with worship and with praise. Because he and he alone is worthy of it. Now this is how Jesus instructs us to pray. Remember the Lord's Prayer, how it begins? Matthew 6, 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It's the first thing he says. It's the first thing you say when you pray. You look up and you confess who God is. Hallowed. It's a word that means holy or set apart. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. You are worthy. You are holy. Now, in the context of Nehemiah 9, this is super important because remember what they're doing at this point, what they've been doing is confessing the sin that led them into exile to begin with. And do you remember what that sin primarily was? It was idolatry, which is exactly the opposite of looking up. It was looking everywhere else. They weren't looking at God. They weren't rightly recognizing him for who he was. They were, they were worshiping other pagan gods. They'd begin to worship the Baals, and they were mixing their religion with outside nations. And, and so the, the way this prayer begins strikes at the very heart of their context. How do you turn away from idolatry? By turning towards the one true God. Now, there's a couple of things that have to happen in order for us to be able to accomplish this. Number one, I need to know who God is. If I'm going to look up with praise and adoration, I need to know who I'm looking at. Now, how do I know who God is? How do we learn who God is? Through YouTube, right? No. <laughs> Through the scriptures. The scriptures. This is why studying scripture is so important. It's why going to Bible study, reading the Bible on your own, taking in the word of God is so valuable. We have to know who God is. How can we pray to, worship, and fellowship with a God we know almost nothing about? You can't pray to God unless you understand to whom you are praying to. You're just saying words at that point. It looks good on the outside. It looks like a relationship, but it's void of any real life or meaning or substance. It reminds me, I thought about this this past week. About a month ago, we went to the park, and uh, it was on a Sunday afternoon. It was after church. We had this, uh, this little 
group of people that we work out with, they had this big park day. And so we went out there and, and uh, tons of kids there. And, and they, you know, we were throwing a football around and throwing Frisbees and had food. And it was just a great time. It was kind of overcast. It wasn't too hot. It was, it was really just a wonderful day. And my daughter, Lydia, five, uh, comes running up, holding the hands of this little girl. And she says, Daddy, my best friend is here. And I thought, well, how cool is that? You know, one of the people she goes to school with, and what are the odds of that? And they go off playing, and they're, you know, giggling and being five-year-old little girls. And uh, a couple minutes later, Cam and Tori, my, my two, you know, eight-year-old going on 17 daughters, uh, come up to me. And, and I said, uh, girls, I said, how cool is it that Lydia's best friend is here as well? And they were like, who? And I was like, first of all, don't who me like that. And, um, and I said, that over there. And Cam looks over, and she's like, Dad, she doesn't even know her. <laughs> and I was like, well, she told me she was her best friend. And Tori goes, definitely not her best friend. <laughs> and I went, cool, 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 cool. So she comes, you know, running back over a little while longer. And, and I said, Lydia. And, you know, they kind of ran up and they were all kind of out of breath and giggling. And I said, so this is your best friend. And she was standing behind her and she goes, yeah, it's my best friend. And I said, hey, what's her name? And she goes, uh, hey, what's your name? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, looked really great on the outside. Didn't even know her name. And, and I wonder how, how many times people in the Christian faith fall into this category. Where it's like, look, I'm praying and I'm talking to God and I don't even really know him. You see, you can pray every day, but the question is, who is receiving your prayer and do you even really know him? It's a fundamentally important question that we have to wrestle with. What is informing your view of God? If it's not scripture, then push the pause button and go back to the text. In order to look up, I have to know who God is. But secondly, I need to know what my idols are. I need to know what my distractions are. In, in, in other words, what are the things that you give yourself the most to? I'm not even going to try to give you examples of that. I'm not going to try to manipulate you into whatever. I'm going to allow the Holy Spirit to do his work there. But if you want a place to begin to diagnose that, here's a good question you can ask. What do I spend the most time thinking about? What dominates my thoughts? What dominates my decisions? That might be a good place to start. I'm not saying it's necessarily an idol. Again, I'll let the Holy Spirit sort that out. But, but the prayer of an influencer begins by looking away from distractions in my life and looking up at the one true God. I'm going to show you. Don't show the picture just yet if you don't mind. Uh, we'll, we'll do it in a minute. But I'm going to show you in a moment a picture uh, by Norman Rockwell. It's a painting that I thought of this week, and I love this painting. It's, uh, Norman Rockwell is an American painter, uh, 1894 to 1978. And uh, by the end of his career, had had produced more than 4,000 paintings. Just a prolific artist. Uh, he is responsible for uh, illustrating Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. Uh, he was commissioned to produce four uh, White House portraits from four different presidents: Dwight D. Eisenhower, John F. Kennedy, Lyndon B. Johnson, and Richard Nixon. Um, <laughs> as great as those paintings were and are, I mean, they're still in existence. I thought of a lesser known one that we're gonna show you here. It's a picture of St. Thomas Church on Fifth Avenue. This is in New York City. This is a real church, uh, really just 
unbelievably beautiful church. Uh, Gothic architecture, the inside is absolutely stunning. You can Google it, uh, not right now, but St. Thomas Church on 5th, it's, it's stunning. Um, but in the picture, you see the people who are walking down the streets of New York City, and they're all very downtrodden, right? They're slouched over. They're very beat-up looking. Incidentally, this is how I imagine Texans look every summer. It's how I feel, at least, just beaten up. And uh, if we were to modernize this, this was painted in the 1950s. If you were to modernize this, they would probably look very similar. Everybody would be looking down, except for not at the ground. They'd be looking at their phones, right? And and you can't probably see it if you're further in the back. It's kind of small, but there's a, a, a rector who's putting up one of the signs in the back, kind of one of those old church signs that are black with the white letters, which incidentally we need here. I've just decided I, I could come up with all kinds of wonderful little statements to bless you by every Sunday. We need to make that happen. Uh, but if, if you can't read it, the sign says, lift up thine eyes. Lift up thine eyes. It's a quote from Isaiah 40, verse 26. And I, I really love this picture a lot. There's this weird sort of hopefulness that I get from looking at it. A weary, beaten down world, so preoccupied with their own problems, so distracted by the idols in their lives, they're not even paying attention to what they're doing or where they're going or where they're walking. And the call of Scripture from Isaiah 40 and from Matthew 6 and from Nehemiah 9 is to look up, lift up thine eyes. Pay attention to the one who answers all of those problems. If you want the answer to your problems, the issues that you face, it begins with turning away from them and putting your eyes on the only one who is deserving of your affection. We look up in praise and worship. Second, the prayer of an influencer looks back in reflection. Now, if you keep reading in chapter 9, verses 7 through 31 gives you this really kind of cool and quick overview of the history of God's relationship with Israel. And there are three major things that happen in these passages as they reflect back on the things that have happened. Number one, they reflect on the faithfulness of God. In verses 7 and 8, they're reflecting specifically on God's faithfulness to call Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans and into covenant relationship with him. This is ultimately where he promises the land to them as well. And I love how verse 8 ends. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. God keeps his promises because he's righteous. Verses 9 through 12, they remember the exodus, the miraculous deliverance from the bondage of Pharaoh and of Egypt and how God led them out and guided them through the wilderness. And remember, they had just celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, and so this was really fresh on their mind. They had just been celebrating this. And then verses 13 and 14, they recall how God gave them the law at Sinai. And then verse 15, they remember the provision that God gave them in the wilderness while they were wandering, the manna. And then on verse 24, they reflect on how throughout history, God repeatedly raised up deliverers that would protect them against oppressors and various foreign nations who meant to harm them. And in all of this, they're reflecting on God's faithfulness to them. God has been faithful to us. But that's not all they do. Secondly, they confess their unfaithfulness back to God. They admit that though he has been faithful, they have failed miserably. Verse 16, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and they stiffened their necks and they did not obey your commandments. They talk about how God gave them the land in spite of their rebellion. 
And in all the things in the land were a blessing to them. But then you get to verse 26, and it says, Nevertheless, they were disobedient, and they rebelled against you, and they cast your law behind their back, and they killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. This, by the way, is a Reader's Digest primer on Christian living. God is faithful, and we screw up everything else. That's it. That's how it works. There's one other component here, though, that's very important. They not only reflect on God's faithfulness and confess their unfaithfulness, but they give thanks for God's forgiveness. Such an important part. Verse 17, they say, but you are a God, listen to this, ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. Verses 18 and 19, it says, and even when they had made for themselves a golden calf. By the way, that golden calf uh, episode is the largest worship service recorded in history in, in the Bible. And it wasn't to God. It was to an idol. And they said, this is our God who brought us out of Egypt. And it says, and they committed great blasphemies. And you, in your great mercies, did not forsake them in the wilderness. Largest idolatrous worship service in the history, and God still remained faithful, and they gave thanks. God was merciful. All of this happens because they look back. It's such an important practice in your prayer life to look back while you were praying. But why, Pastor Derek? It's a great question. I'm glad you asked. There are at least two reasons I can think of. Number one, when I look back, It provides a constant reminder for my need for confession. Whenever I look back at the scope of my life, and I remember the many, and I do mean many, countless times that I have been unfaithful to God, I'm reminded of my need for confession. I need to be reminded of that. I need to be reminded that I am a broken human being. I need to be reminded that I am not perfect. I need to be reminded that I am unfaithful to God. Because if not, I start believing something about myself that's not true. But when I'm reminded of this stuff, when I'm reminded of how broken I am, how destitute I really am, it brings me to the low place of humility. And that is incidentally the best place for prayer. What does James chapter 4 verse 6 say? God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Looking back keeps me humble. But second... It gives me confidence in God's grace when I confess. So when I look back at my failures, I can see how in every single one of those instances, God's grace covered it all. And that gives me confidence now in the future that he will do it again. So many of you believe the lie that you have come to a place in your life because of the bad things you've done that you're just simply outside of God's forgiveness. And you may not admit that consciously, but I think if you were to, to really get in touch with how you feel, you would, you would see that that's probably true. That I, how could God ever forgive me? How could God ever, I, I, I've screwed this up so many times, I don't even know how to count. How, why would God keep coming back to forgive me? And you need to know that's not true. That's not true. God has a long and a rich history of forgiving undeserving people like you and me. It's kind of what he does. He sort of made a name for himself in that category. When I look back and I see the evidence of that, it gives me confidence for the future as well because here's the deal. It ain't a matter of if, it's a matter of when I'm going to be unfaithful again. 
and I'm going to need to confess again. And God, by his grace and kindness, will forgive again. To pray like an influencer, it means first I look up, it means second I look back, third, they looked at the present in petition. So after looking up and after looking back, now they're ready to make their ask. Isn't it funny? This is usually where we go first. Dear God, here's what I need, right? This is the third step in their prayer. This is the third, it's, and they only want to ask. There's only one thing they really ask for in this very long prayer. It's found in verse 32. They say, do not let all the hardship seem insignificant before you. I love that. In other words, don't take our suffering lightly. That's the only thing we ask, God. When you look at us, don't take our suffering lightly. Now, what hardship and suffering are they talking about? The 150 years of exile that they've been waiting through. Now, here's the deal. Their suffering was difficult. It was awful. It was challenging. And God was not unaware of that. It was God's hand who led them into discipline to begin with because of their idolatry. God was very aware of their hardship. It did not seem insignificant to him. And listen to me, your hardship does not seem insignificant to him either. I love Psalm 55, 22. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. It doesn't say, cast your burden on the Lord and he'll think about it. Cast your burden on the Lord and hopefully he gets back with you. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. The Apostle Peter says it this way, 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He says, humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God. How do you do that? By looking up and by looking back. Remember, that brings us to a place of humility. And then you cast your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. The world is perhaps now more than ever before more anxious than it's ever been. And God says, let me have it. Bring it to me. Humble yourselves and bring it to me. This is why this is step three and not step one. Because before you're ready to make the ask, you need to know who you're worshiping and praising and praying to, and you need to remember what he's already done in light of your failures. And then you make the ask. You look up, you look back, you look at the present, and finally, we'll end here, you look ahead with commitment. They ended with a commitment to God. They worshiped him, they confessed their sin, they made their ask, and now they say, we want to be restored as your covenant people, and we are willing and committed to do what you have called us to do. Verse 38, it says, because of all this, we made a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. They made a written agreement. Now understand this, the written agreement was not for God. It wasn't like the moment that they failed, because it was going to happen, they were going to veer off, that God was going to pull out that written agreement and light a fire and set it on fire, right? Drop it before them. Game over, suckers. (laughs) It's not what's happening. This written agreement is for them. This is a public acknowledgement of everything that has just happened. And so now, together, as a community of believers, they are acknowledging this is our commitment before the Lord. Let me break this down very practically for you as we wrap this up. Here's how you can pray like an influencer. You begin your prayer by looking up. 
You, you are reminded of who the biblical God is. Not the TV God, not the whatever God, the biblical God. You recognize, you own, and you confess the distractions in your life that prevent you from following him faithfully. You confess that. And then you look back in your prayer, and you remember, you recall the times God forgave you for all of your failures. No matter how unfaithful you were, God has always remained faithful to you. And then you make your ask, God, here's what I'm asking. Whatever that is, whatever God's put on your heart, you ask it from a place of humility now rightly oriented in light of your failures and God's forgiveness. And then here's the last way. This is how it plays out practically. The part that no one wants to hear. You go find someone else, preferably a few people, preferably of the same sex. So if you are a man, other males. If you are a woman, other females. You share with them what you have prayed, what you have confessed to God. So by confessing to them, you share with them what you have asked God so that they may pray with you. And then you share with them what you are committed to now in order to be obedient to his calling on your life. And then here's what you do. You look them in the eye and you say, would you hold me accountable to this? Would you... Help me keep my commitment to God because here's the deal. I'm not going to. I know myself well. I'm going to fail miserably at this. I'm going to start on this path and some shiny object or stupid thing is going to distract me and I'm going to start walking off the path and I need you desperately to go, hey, remember that commitment you made? Get back on the path. That's public confession. That's communal prayer, communal commitment. We have to acknowledge the importance of this. Life is hard, isn't it? I mean, can we just get a hearty amen? It's so much harder, or dare I say impossible, alone. Don't do it alone, because you you won't do it alone. You'll end up somewhere down the line that you never wanted to be. We have to do life together. This is the theme of our conference this weekend for men. It's true for men and it's true for women as well. This is how the body of Christ operates together. Together. You lock arms with other believers with the commitment that yes, we have failed and God has been faithful in spite of it and God is forgiving and merciful and so we're gonna ask him, we're gonna plead with him humbly because it's what he tells us as his children to do and then we're gonna share that with one another radically, without fear, with courage, and we're going to hold one another accountable along the way. Here's the question for you, city on a hill. Who are those people in your life? Who are they? Well, it's, it's my neighbor. You don't even know your neighbor. Stop lying to yourself. <laughs> Who is it? Well, it's my work buddies. They, they may not even know the Lord. That's not a good... Who here is that for you in your life? I'm not saying this to pressure you. I'm not saying this to make you feel bad about yourself. I'm, 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 I'm giving you a warning. That if you don't know who that person is, if you don't know who those people are, that's where you start because life becomes significantly less burdensome when there's someone there to do the one another's of the New Testament together to help you along the way as weary wanderers to be reminded together, lift up thine eyes. Stop with the distractions. Stop with the shame. Stop with the hiding. 
Let's do this together. Who is that person for you? I'm going to pray, and I want you to think about that, and and I want you to, to seriously wrestle with this for more than a few seconds. I want you to wrestle with what would God have you do? What is the Holy Spirit leading you to do? Maybe it's join a group. I don't care what kind of group it is. Honestly, freedom group, life group, Bible study, Monday night, Sunday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday, I don't care. Who are you connecting with? What is the Spirit telling you? Where is he leading you? Maybe you're thinking, you know, I don't really know who who God is. Well, then go to a Bible study, and then you get the best of both worlds. You get the Bible, and you get community. We have great ones. We have great Bible studies, and it's far more about our leaders than anything else. They are great at walking our people through the Scripture. I want you to wrestle with this. I want you to think deeply about it. Prayer is so much more than just stopping for a moment and asking God to do something because it's inconvenient. It's about remembering him, remembering who we are in light of him, basking in the forgiveness and mercy that he has for us, and then humbly walking ahead with a commitment to serve him obediently. Pray with me. Father, we confess that you are the maker of all things, the creator of heavens and earth. You are the one who calls us out of darkness and into light, and you are our savior, and we are grateful for that. We confess our failures before you. We confess that there are times when we have made commitments to you and we have not held up. And yet in light of our failures, God, you've forgiven us despite our weakness, despite our frailty. And so we ask that you would give us the courage, that you would give us the boldness to be known by other people here in this body, that we would make ourselves known fully, not just the good parts, all the rough edges as well, God, that we would be known by others as we're known by you and loved by others as we are loved by you, that we may receive grace by others as we've received it from you. And then help us, God, to be bound together by your spirit as we are committed to walk in the steps that you have provided for us. We, Lord, we confess we will fail we will, we will trip, we will stumble, we will be distracted, and we count on what history tells us, that you are faithful in spite of it all. We love you, we thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. I uh, am so excited. We've got a lot of great things happening this summer. Chris will be here next week uh, for a a message. It's always good to hear from him. James will be up here on the 5th, and and I know he's excited to uh, bring a message to you guys as well. And then June 12th, we start our new series. It'll lead us to the summer, uh, verse-by-verse study through the book of Titus called The Culture War. Uh, Hope that you will invite people. This is such an important subject on how to be the church How are we to um, engage in the culture that we exist in? Uh, The scripture has the answers for us, uh, specifically in Titus. So I hope that you will be excited and invite others. Uh, We've got a lot of stuff happening. If you want to help in any of those things that I mentioned, let us know. God bless you. We will see you next time.